if you would find a seat and a cup of joe and whatever else, we'll get started. Um, if you would uh, take your Bibles, is that too loud? It's not okay. Um, if you take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 8, and then we'll pray. Heavenly Father, we just um, humble ourselves and um, realizing once again we're not sufficient for the grace and the great gifts you've given us. Father, we just pray you would open your word this morning and open your heart that we might know you, we might be people after your own heart like David. So we just uh, commit this time to you and just pray that uh, my words would be your words. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, um, this this psalm, uh, I wanted to take a fresh look at this psalm. Jack has talked about this psalm, Psalm 8. I think I've talked about it in a previous uh, session. So I just, um, I wanted to come back and look at it again because there's some, some deep, important things here. Um, <clears throat> it's interesting, in, in, uh, we just finished Ruth with Jack, and uh, in Matthew 1.1, in the genealogy of Jesus Christ, uh, the son of David, it says, and in verse 5, to Boaz was born Obed by Ruth, and to Obed, Jesse, and to Jesse, David, the king. And so, the author here is in that genealogy, and it's, uh, it kind of fits with what we just finished in, uh, in Ruth. So um, this is a psalm of David, and again, you know, the, uh, in 1 Samuel 13, it says, The Lord has sought out for himself a man after his own heart, which should be what we would attain to. Um, if you have a New American Standard, maybe you're version of the scriptures has the same thing, but it says, um, the Lord's glory and man's dignity. And that's what we're going to see. There's this really, this comparison. And so um, underneath that, it says for the choir director on the Gittith, uh, which is, uh, never looked this up before, which is really weak, but um, <clears throat> this uh, Gittith is a guitar-like a harp uh, from uh, Gath down in uh, Philistia. So that's interesting. And so um, it's, a, it's really a hymn of praise or a psalm of praise. And that's what uh, David uh, is um, led to here and how he's recording this, what he's seeing. And so it's really a prayer of praise. So let me just read these few verses and then we'll, uh, we'll look at these. Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is thy name in all the earth, who hast displayed thy splendor above the heavens. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes thou hast established strength because of thine adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou dost take thought of him, and the son of man that thou dost care for him? 
Yet thou hast made him a little lower than God, and dost crown him with glory and majesty. Thou dost make him to rule over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is thy name in all the earth. So he begins and ends with that verse that I just, uh, I just read. The, uh, you get a sense, gosh, I think I'm over-hyped here. What's that? Yeah, I need to put this thing under water or something. Um, of course, I'm not a submariner, so I wouldn't know how to do that. <clears throat> so um, you get a sense of relationship. If you look at some of these words, like in the first verse and the ninth verse, O Lord, our Lord, possessive, uh, His Lord, how majestic is Thy name in, in all the earth. So this is what he begins and ends with, this hymn of uh, praise. Uh, this is also a nature psalm or a psalm of creation, and it's also about the created dignity of man, which we'll look at in a second. Um, and it also brings Adamic theology, the, the theology of Adam, that with this created dignity of man, to the forefront. And we're going to understand the first Adam and the last Adam a little bit more. So this is an important association. Um, and it's of the one, the last Adam, which is the Lord Jesus Christ, and the many, or the offspring, or mankind, uh, uh, from that first Adam to the last uh, Adam. Um, and there's a passage in Hebrews that we'll look at that really parallels this, which is pretty fascinating. Whenever you have those parallels between something in the Old Testament and the New Testament, it is, is pretty interesting. So let's just dig into this a little bit. Um, so in uh, the first part of the first verse, he says, O Lord, which is the word Yehovah, or Jehovah, um, the self-existent eternal God. Uh, our Lord, uh, Adnan, our ruler, Lord, and master is what that word means, our sovereign. How majestic, a dear, how powerful, glorious, mighty, noble is thy name in all the earth. The second part of that verse, uh, who, our Lord, has displayed thy splendor above the heavens. Above the heavens. Is that what we observe? No, there's something deeper here. Um, it's like when we look up at the heavens, and it's obviously at night because he talks about the stars and the moon. So he's looking up at the heavens, seeing this, this order, and it um, splendor above the heavens. Well, it's like when we look at that order of those heavens, it... it uh, is, relates to something deeper, something from above the heavens, uh, the order that's in the universe that doesn't come from within the heavens themselves. The stars, they didn't create it themselves. This, this supernatural order that everything was created came from above uh, on, a grand, on a grand scale. This word splendor is interesting. It means uh, to shine, um, great luster or brightness, uh, brilliance, glory. It's like Psalm 19.1. The heavens are telling of the glory of God. 
and their expanses declaring the work of his hands. That's definitely from above the heavens. When it says, um, who has displayed, that word displayed, natan, uh, it's a verb, primitive root, like the word Nathan, um, to give with greatest latitude of application or utter display. A little bit of help from Webster's. Uh, to unfold, or to unfurl the eye, to the eye, uh, to put out or spread out so as to be seen, to exhibit or disclose. So really in its fullest glory, uh, this is being uh, revealed, so to display. And that word uh, splendor, of thy heavens, the splendor, which is the word hode, um, which uh, is grandeur, beauty, glory, majesty. And so we, we kind of knew what splendor meant, but we talked about it a little bit before, that brightness. And uh, above the heavens, I'm trying to get the sense of the words because I, some of these, it's really hard to get to ground truth. I don't, it, it's not telling me enough. I want to know more. I want to know God's heart here. Well, that's going to probably take a while. So, what is this? What is really above the heavens mean? Mean that's the word al, over, upon, above, or uh, before Barb rolls her eyes, um, <clears throat> you know, beyond the observable space-time of the heavens. Um, and the uh, question, Tom? No, I just said wow. To think of, of that. Well, I, it's just yeah. I mean, <coughs> These are things that uh, you can't uh, you can't snap to. I mean, you have to think about these things a long time and meditate on them, and to have the verses, um, you know, go through your head a lot. Um, so above, beyond the observable space time of the heavens that we see, and so the heavens, the heavens. Uh, this is the word shamayim, the lofty sky. Now this is what's interesting. That heavens means a couple of different things. Um, it's more than just one uh, single word. It's the um, lofty sky as the visible arch of the clouds, as we observe outward, and the higher space or space-time of celestial bodies. Those are the first two heavens. The atmosphere, basically, uh, and then outside the atmosphere or um, space. Now, there's a third heaven. Too. And that's where we get to this above the heavens. And so um, Paul talked about this in 1 Corinthians 12. Let me just turn there real quick. This is uh, 1 Corinthians 12, uh, the first uh, five verses or so. <clears throat> No, that's not it. That's not it. We're getting there. Yeah, we have a future. Um, Barb, Barb probably distracted me when I was writing this, writing this down. Um, um, you know, what's the difference between a one and a two, uh, you know? Second Corinthians uh, 12, the first few verses. Goodness. <clears throat> this is Paul's vision in uh, 2 Corinthians 12. Boasting is necessary, though it is not profitable, but I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. 
I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or out of the body I do not know, God knows, such a man was caught up to the third heaven. And I know how such a man, whether in the body or apart from the body I do not know, God knows, was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak. Uh, whether or not this is Paul, some people have talked about that. John MacArthur has talked about this as maybe the only person that could describe this would be Paul himself, maybe. Um, but he keeps it you know, sort of unknown there. And so, but what we do sense from this passage is what the third heaven is. It's the heaven of heavens. It's also talked about in, in Scripture, that third heaven. So we see this sort of in, in both the New Testament and the Old Testament. Was caught up to paradise and heard inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak. So that kind of gets to the, the glory and the grandeur that's above us. So that's a little bit on the third heavens. Um, in Deuteronomy 10.14, uh, it says, Praise him highest heavens, or heaven of heavens, and the waters that are above the heavens. The waters I'm not going to get into, but that re refers back to Genesis 1.2. Um, so the waters that are above the heavens, which, again, those waters, what, what could they be? Well, maybe uh, pre-light in the sense of, of primordial uh, energy waves that God was preparing before he released light in Genesis 1-3. Um, <clears throat> Ephesians 4.10 says, He who descended is himself also he who, uh, who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. So again, above the heavens, through the heavens. And then in Hebrews 4.14, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. So there's this um, sense of what above the heavens means. Not a lot of cross-references, but to, we get the sense of it's where God dwells and it's where he created the order that we observe now in the heavens. So that's uh, verse 1, um, 8, uh, eight uh, 1. Uh, any questions on that so far? Tom. So the, uh, the third heaven would be paradise. The first heaven would be the visible. The first heaven is the atmosphere, clouds, you know. And then above that is space outside the atmosphere. So would that be like a second heaven? Even that it is the second heaven. Is, is the expanse. The right, right. And those are both what we can observe naturally. The third heaven is supernatural. So it's above those first two. <clears throat> so Psalm 8-2. Let's look at this. Um, this, and I'm cheating a little bit. I, I used, you know, John MacArthur's commentary a little bit. To, he really sort of illuminates some of this, and he talks about contrasts that are mentioned in this psalm. Um, the first contrast we'll see in this next verse, 8-2, which is the, the helpless, dependent babies versus godless adversaries. That's how he words it. And then 8, 3 through 8, the, pretty much the balance of this whole psalm is the uh, unaided general revelation and the unveiled special revelation that we have in Jesus and in the scriptures. So there's a contrast there in the, in the verses 3 through 8. Um, but this, um, you can't 
just read this stuff quick because you got to think about this a little bit because there's some, some depth here. Why would he mention uh, from the mouth of infants and nursing babes, thou hast established strength? Well, we'll get there. But this particular strength, it does mean stronghold or bulwark. But do you see that when you see these new little babies in our families? No, you see total dependence and, and, and um, inability. You don't see this kind of strength because that's got to come from somewhere else. And it's, and it's really the sovereignty of God. So these babies, th through infants and nursing babes, thou hast established strength. Uh, which is interesting to think about. Um, again, bulwark, stronghold, uh, some sort of a fortified rampart uh, or wall. This is what God has created around even these youngest of humans who are totally dependent upon His sovereignty. Uh, and these are the weakest of, you know, humans, babies. Um, and um, this is... The contrast is verse, verses uh, foolishly self-sufficient or thine adversaries. And so um, this is a contrast, again, between God's sovereignty seen in even these weakest of, of humans versus these people that are, you know, arrogant, self-sufficient. Um, and um, to make thine enemy in revengeful, revengeful cease. So um, there's a real contrast there. Um, the foolishly self-sufficient, thine adversaries. So these displays of God's sovereign superintending over the vast expanse of the heavens, from above the heavens to the smallest, most helpless humans, it's intended to shame and silence godless adversaries. Um, <clears throat> how could they possibly really understand any of this? Um, so, and again, to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. This will shame them, maybe, into seeing that, you know, there's a much grander uh, universe than what you understand. Um, and so, I find myself going here a lot, but in Romans 1, 18 and 19, we see the same same contrast. Romans 1, 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, or even looking up at the heavens, they, they know, um, <clears throat> With, is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. This is that um, general revelation that has been provided to everybody. Um, in verse 20, For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, in at least some sense, uh, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart 
was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the, the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds, four-footed animals, and crawling creatures. And there's some therefore there, um, the result of that uh, in their lives. So this is um, that second contrast, the... the, the um, the people that are unwilling to really look at um, the God of the universe, even though it's, it's pretty obvious. <clears throat> the um, second contrast is, is what we see uh, with, with um, the, um, the heavens, the work of thy fingers, and the moon. And so if we just look at... Um, Revelation 8.3, look at that really, just really quick. I have no clue why I went there. It's probably some flashback to something Jack said. I, I, if, if, I could, if I could maybe uh, blame him. But uh, actually, that's left for a study for the students. Okay? Uh, you guys can just, just, just look at that. I think we'll come back to that, hopefully, and uh, maybe re re remove that embarrassment. <clears throat> So this, the second contrast here, 8.3 through 8, is the vastness of the heavens versus man, the smallness of man, if you will. Uh, how could this be? Um, it's, um, again, it's the supernatural versus the natural, really. But he says in uh, 8.3, When I considered thy heavens, they're his, the work of thy fingers, which, again, does God have fingers? Well, this is sort of that anthropomorphic, human-like characteristics that we give uh, God. And, and there's an interesting connection here. I mean, we're made in the image of God, so maybe there is some uh, connection. Um, so, <clears throat> but that's just sort of a human-like characteristic that we apply to what he can build and make and everything. The moon and the stars, which thou hast ordained, and what does that word ordained mean? Appointed, fixed, um, and um, basically set up, uh, uh, ordained, created. And so let's look at a couple of these words. Let me, let me give you another contrast in the midst of this. Um, there's this famous physicist, James Peebles, who I've sort of followed his career, um, some of his research, but he got the Nobel Prize a couple years ago. And... Um, he basically said that this is one of those honest times where you have a Nobel laureate who says what he really feels. He was asked, okay, so what about the standard model and all this cosmology stuff that we built up this, this thing? And he says, um, all we can say is the universe just started expanding. That's it. That's it. That's a Nobel Prize. 
Well, that's not specifically the Nobel Prize, but, but goodness gracious, that's all we can say after this long career and all the observations and things? It just started expanding. Well, the problem is, where does causality fit in with that? Uh, it doesn't. It doesn't. Um, it's like another scientist, another physicist who said, yeah, the universe is just something that comes along from time to time. What? <clears throat> so, at any rate, uh, there's, there's that contrast for you. Um, so some of the words in this, when I consider, consider, uh, that word is ra'ah, to see, behold indeed, is what I like, or joyfully look on. And again, your heavens, same word as we, we talked about earlier, uh, your heavens, and ordained, again, to causatively stand erect, be fixed, order, perfect, or set, just some different adjectives to describe that, um, and the stars which thou hast ordained. Um, <clears throat> Romans 1, a couple of verses we read fit there too. Um, and so, compared to the vastness of the heavens, what do we have? Verse 4, what is man that thou dost take thought of him? And the son of man that thou dost care for him? So, this is the first time we've seen this, this ter term, this phrase, the son of man. And there's a duality here, which I want I want to make sure you don't miss uh, this duality of meaning where it can be uh, a son of man, of the lineage of man, uh, like from the first Adam. And in fact, in Daniel 8.17, Gabriel addresses Daniel as son of man. So that's a pretty common term, really, uh, addressing humans. Uh, and there's some other there's some other cross references which I, I'm afraid I, I hope I didn't get them wrong so I'm not going to go there I don't think I did but in Numbers and Job and Psalm uh, this the Son of Man is a term that's used to describe humans and then there's the Son of Man the last Adam the Lord Jesus um, who you know in in whom all things exist and are upheld so um, and you see these. Um, in, in both these passages, Psalm 8 and um, in uh, Hebrews 2. So I know that one's right. So we can, we can go to Hebrews 2. Sometimes I don't know what I'm thinking. <clears throat> I'd like to attribute it to deep thoughts, but it, I don't know, who knows. <clears throat> so Hebrews 2, this is the parallel passage, the New Testament version of, of Psalm 8, really. And so let me just read that. Um, Just hang on, I, I, you know, I'm, the, the thought processes are coming, Rita, just yeah, yeah, be a little patient here. So Hebrews, Hebrews 2, starting at verse 5, so, for he did not subject to angels the world to come concerning which we are speaking, but one has testified somewhere saying, love it, one, uh, the author of Hebrews, maybe Paul, says stuff like that, but one has testified somewhere, I wish it could be that, like when we cite a paper or something, <clears throat> so... What is man that thou rememberest him, or the son of man that thou art concerned about him? Thou hast made him for a little while lower than the angels. Thou hast crowned him with glory and honor, and hast appointed him over the works of thy hands. 
thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. Which Adam is being discussed here? Yeah, the last Adam, Jesus. This is, this is, um, and let me go on. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him in his earthly human form. But um, this is the one that, you know, Colossians 1 says, in him all things hold together. Um, so that's the last Adam. And so there are some interesting parallels between these two. If you line up these passages together, um, in um, Psalm 8.5, it says, Yet thou hast made him a little lower than God. And then Hebrews 2.7, Thou hast made him for a little while a little lower than the angels. So the supernatural realm, really. And in 8.5, And dost crown him with glory and majesty. And so... Um, Pretty similar in the Hebrews passage, thou hast crowned him with glory and honor. And in verse 6 of Psalm 8, thou dost make him rule over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet. All sheep, um, the earthly dominion basically, all sheep and oxen, beasts, birds, fish. And so this seems to be the son of man as in mankind. And if you relate it back to Genesis 1, Let's go back there. Genesis 1. And I'll start in verse... Um, in verse 26, it, it says, Then God said, Let us, you know, the triune Godhead, make man in our image according to our likeness capital O with that, our likeness. And then let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and rule over all the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And so this is really the first Adam, you know, um, and, and mankind. And so um, <clears throat> of which Jesus is ultimately a part of, but there's more uh, to him than that. And so <clears throat> uh, just what we've just read, uh, the roots of this with the first Adam, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. So we are made, we, we knew this, and it's hard to completely exhaust this whole idea, but we are made uh, in, in God's image, and um, we are made to rule over the earth, basically, fish and birds and cattle, over all the earth, earthly dominion. And God created man in his own image. The image of God, He created him, and we just we just read that. So it's this this word image. If we want to delve into that a little bit, it's not just a physical likeness or representation. It's deeper. Uh, it's invisible to the point of being um, you know supernatural. And so um, so earthly dominion was given to man created in god's image and it was so 
that last verses, verses 28 to 30 in um, Genesis 1. So this, what is this word image to continue? In his own image, the word is uh, a selem, T-S-E-L-E-M, which means resemblance or representative figure. Uh, I like this, a cutout. So we're sort of a cutout. Um, and so God created man in his image. Uh, and so um, how does, this is just a small part of the universe. So God's image, he created man. Uh, the heavens are telling of the glory of God, and he also created man. And so um, in God's image, we're created. But is there a reflection back? Is there any bi-directionality to this where, or since we're created in, in God's image, is there any of our image that we can look at God and point to? And so, um, of God the Creator. A couple of verses here. Hope these are right. In Ecclesiastes uh, 3.11. If I was coordinated, it would really help. Ecclesiastes 3.11, Solomon records, he has made everything, so the the title of this little sub-area paragraph, God said eternity in the heart of man. So he has made everything appropriate um, in its time. He has also set eternity in their heart yet so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. <clears throat> so he has set eternity in our hearts. So that's something that, that, that is a, a, you know, created in the image of God. And in um, Micah 5.2, just one more here. So, but as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrata, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. So we know Jesus is from eternity, but he's also set that eternity in our hearts. So that's a connection. <clears throat> The, um, any questions before we go on? Well, what does that mean, that eternity in our hearts? I have no idea, Tom. <laughs> well, I tell you, what, one aspect is fairly obvious. We're going to live eternally in one place or another. I mean, that's sort of the face value sense of that. But eternity in our hearts now, I, I think that's... The connection is that we are going to live forever and um, either with the Lord or not with the Lord. So I think that's the first part of it. Uh, there may be some deeper aspects that um, I just haven't exhausted yet. But it's, we're talking about eternity here. So um, there's not some nice closed form equation that I can give you. I'd love to, but I can't. <clears throat> there is one thing I can share, though, and I thought this was pretty interesting. Um, how much time do we have? Just enough. 
actually we'll end a little early, more donuts and stuff. There's this, there's this principle, I just stumbled across this, this last week, and this is from the Journal of Cosmology, believe it or not. Not cosmetology, <laughs> Kelly. So we need, keep, we need to keep drawing that barrier. People accuse me of being a cosmetologist, and I'm not, I'm not into nails and, you know, lipstick and stuff. <clears throat> so let's keep these separate, okay? Um, in this Journal of Cosmology, there's this little paper that I stumbled across. Listen to this. This is amazing. The Anthropic Principle, which really started in the 40s, and uh, there's, there's a pretty good history here. But the Anthropic Principle, what is it? And could, could it be true? And it's actually a physics principle of cosmology. Listen to this. <clears throat> the anthropic principle is a theory that focuses on human life as the main drive behind the existence of the universe. Wow. A suggestion that scientists could use as the starting point to study how properties of the universe exist to accommodate human life. It's kind of, we know that. It's called, other, other authors call it fine-tuning that every, all the constants are fine-tuned for life, you know, especially human life. I mean, we're the right distance from the sun. You know, all the constants are right to, for life to be created on the earth. And so <clears throat> that scientists could use as a starting point to study how the properties of the universe, universe exist to accommodate human life. It is regarded as a cosmological theory as it attempts to explain the seemingly perfect balance of the universe. Goodness, this guy gets really close. I want to send him a Bible or something. <clears throat> this, this whole anthropic principle is a principle of physics. Uh, it was first coined by this physicist Brandon Carter in 1973, and, um, <clears throat> which was a response to the Copernicus principle uh, that he tried to rid humanity of any significant role in the universe. You know, the, the sun-centric versus the earth-centric. Everybody initially thought that everything just revolved around the earth pompously, you know. Uh, so the, the Copernicus was that the sun was the center of the solar system. Well, that's different than saying man's, what man's place in the universe is. Um, contrary to popular belief, Carter didn't think that humans formed a vital part of the universe. That's where he strayed. So he did somewhat follow Copernicus' lead, and that's been such a you know, big principle in physics that yeah, we ridded ourselves of these religious fanatics that thought the Earth was the center of the universe. Well, still kind of is. Just doesn't, you know, things don't rotate around the Earth. Um, <clears throat> so the way his theory differs slightly is, is how that Carter viewed human life as a fact that cannot be completely ignored. Yeah, in this case, you are one, Carter. Uh, proposed a re-examination of the Copernican uh, principle. So, and the, the, really the first and the most important one of these, there's a variety of these anthropic principles. Um, the strong is that the hypothesis that the universe has been created to accommodate human life, signifying since the first moment of the Big Bang, no, not really, the conditions were designed so that 15 billion later, later this is, what a goofy fairy tale, that 15 billion years later, yeah, but who's counting, and who observed all this, if it's really science, the human species would evolve on Earth. So there's various versions of this, but I thought this is, this is a recent paper, too. This was written in, um, in this Journal of Cosmology, like 2020 or 2021, something like that. 
Um, but at any rate, this, this, is, this is pretty interesting that physics, science, if they're honest, they get sort of close to what we've been talking about in, in Psalm 8 and, and Hebrews 2. So lots of history with this, and I won't bore you with any more of it. I, have, I only can go until Barb rolls her eyes again, so we need to keep, keep an eye on that. Yes, ma'am. In the heart of man. So when you think of the idea of eternity in our hearts, it's like no human being ever feels complete until they're connecting it truly in Jesus' heart. Yeah, that's why we're designed right. with that God-shaped vacuum. No, that's exactly right. I guess what was interesting about this was that at least a few of these scientists who were honest could get to the point where, you know, there's something a lot bigger than myself. And how are all these constants perfectly, you know, set so that human life uh, is sustained? And why are we, again, this, the, the just right distance from the sun? Why is the moon there? Well, have you ever looked at the moon? Pockmarked. It has drawn a lot of meteorites and things, asteroids, from, from hitting the surface of the Earth. That's what the moon does. Um, you can look, tell by looking at it. So, um, at any rate, I, this, I just, there's some famous scientists like uh, John Wheeler uh, and others who have talked about this anthropic principle. The point here is that there's something much deeper than, you know, what many scientists uh, want to talk about. Um, so, you're not getting your money's worth. I'm sorry. Um, any questions or comments? Yes, Lugi. I, I love the, the progression, right? How it talks about his majesty and it's displayed throughout the heavens. So you basically have this infinite scope and then zooms down to infants and adversaries down to the individual person. It's amazing. And how it really is at all these levels, it, it is this no matter where you look, you are, you are prompted to, to ask the question, like, why does stuff work? Right? Like, cosmically, but then. Frankly, if you're a parent, you don't really have much time to look at the cosmos, right? Because you've got these kids, but then even there, you look at them and you're like, why? You, you become more aware with your own vulnerability and mortality, and it just it begs the question at that point, like, how come we continue to live? And it is really like the presence of God in, in all of that, both in the initial establishment of, of laws, but then also, you, you would think that science well, he's created that balance. Exactly, but, he, but then how he also maintains that balance. He does. In him, all things hold together. To zoom down to, like, why would you consider a person? And then he re-explodes it effectively by talking about, not specifically in the psalm, but we know in hindsight, he's talking about the Messiah and that he has placed all the fullness of deity in Jesus and Jesus in mankind. So that you basically have the, the infinite scope of all that is God, which is greater than all the observable things, are in one person. And then he propagates that to all people who will will confess his name and receive. And that like that that scope and care I think is, is just a wonderful thing. And it's only nine verses. I know. I know. It's pretty profound. It's so much. Hey Dan. 
You've read part of this. I'm going to read the first six verses in the 19th chapter of Psalms. Okay. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun. It is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, like the champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. Uh, you mentioned that uh, God created the universe probably for mankind. Probably for mankind. Yeah, I think so. I think so. It's the only thing that makes sense in light of what we've read. And the witness is pretty sure. And that's what Psalm 19 is. The witness is there. That's that general revelation that everybody has. <clears throat> Any other questions or comments? Dan, would you close us? Father, we thank you for your word. It's a light to our feet and our path to our feet. It leads us to Jesus. Thanks for listening.